Hello. Can you hear me? No. You will just need a microphone, right? Yeah. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Ah, you hear me better now, right? Can we turn it up a little, please? Great, perfect. Okay, after doing uh, three years with technology, like 100% on the pandemic, we still <laughs> But thank you for your patience. And um, I am Carmen Diaz-Rios. I am a specialist in cooperative extension with the University of California, Merced. And I'm going to be the moderator of this session today. Um, and so welcome to the OASTRO presentations um, on exploring research on food security and dietary patterns among diverse uh, population. Food security, sorry. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, and so uh, we have four stellar presentations. Um, we are having Irene Rosetta from the University of Texas, Austin, presenting on food insecurity and sugar sweetened beverages, English consumption among young, young adults in community college. Uh, we have Susan Piscopo uh, of the uh, from the University of Malta, uh, uh, presenting on food security among community living, older persons in Malta, uh, consumption provision and challenges. We have uh, Susmita uh, Sadana uh, presenting um, it from the Ohio State University, right? Yeah, Re presenting on perceived impact on dietary patterns on uh, cancer among uh, Asian Indians living in the U.S. And then we have uh, Amir Chanong-Dong, sorry, uh, um, uh, from the University of Maryland, uh, presenting on social network influence on infant feeding decisions among Latinx women. Um, you can find their abstract in the, um, this month's uh, issue of JNB, uh, for all of you uh, who are curious uh, about them. And um, we are going to have a question and answer session after all the four presentations are given. And um, let's... Uh, have the first uh, presentation uh, going, Irene. I think I messed up a little bit with this. Hello, thank you all. So today is my first SNEB meeting. I'm very, very happy to be here today. So I work, uh, I am a sociologist by training, and I work with a bunch of demographers. And I would love to tell you that, you know, it's very a big pleasure for me to be here with people that deeply care about food insecurity and food in general. 
Uh, I've worked with food insecurity for a long time in Brazil at FAO, and now I'm doing population studies at UT Austin. And, you know, I will tell you that my peers don't really know much about food security, and it's something that we really need to explore more because it has huge impact on all the population life, or uh, all cycle of life. So it's something that I'm trying to, you know, put more in my community, but it's just I'm happy to speak to people that understand that and care deeply about that. So thank you for having me today. Uh, first of all, I want to acknowledge my peers and my co-authors at uh, the University of Texas at Austin, UCSF, and also Denmark College, that is a community college at Corpus, in Corpus Christi, Texas. Um, I should probably just skip this slide because I think that most of you know what I want to tell you, but uh, just very quickly, you know, we know that research uh, showed that the consumption of sugar drink is the primary source of added sugar intake for adults and children in the United States. We also saw positive trends in the last few decades with a decline in consumption, but uh, among a certain group, especially I would say black and Latinx population, this consumption is still pretty high. And why is it important to study the sugar, uh, sugar drink consumption? Well, because it's linked to a lot of diseases. First of all, diabetes, but also obesity, cardiovascular diseases, liver diseases, and all of that has an impact on socioeconomic uh, outcome and uh, on the li on life course of people all the time. What do we know about food insecurity and dietary quality? So most of the studies focus on children or adults. And we have very few studies focusing on young adults and more specifically on sugary drink consumption during the transition to adulthood. What we know so far is that the linkage between food insecurity and lower dietary quality is pretty established. Uh, studies are more inconsistent about the association in children probably because this is mediated by some socioeconomic factors by their parents. And about adolescent, adolescents and young adults, we know that the, you know, the studies, the few studies we have uh, show an association between food insecurity and lower dietary quality, but I would say that we need many more studies on that. And we probably will also need to investigate more about the influence of peer behavior. And so the influence that it might have on the dietary quality of uh, teens and in the transition when they are going, you know, to leave their home and going to live alone with other people. So in our research, we examine the association between food insecurity and daily sugar sweetened beverage consumption among young adults in community college. I want to point out that most of the studies we have with uh, college student population is with four-year uh, four college students. We have very few studies in community college. They are highly understudied, and so there is a need to investigate more and know a little bit more about this population. A little bit about our data and methods. So this study has been conducted in California and Texas. The little stars over here is not because I live in Texas, but because there are our community colleges uh, across the both states. So you will see that they are both in rural and urban area. This is an ongoing cluster randomized control trial. We are doing it in 29 community colleges, and we also have a community engaged research component that I can talk to you more about if you're interested after. We have over 2,000 participants. I'm happy to tell that we finished enrollment in May 2023. It was a very long data collection. 
COVID impacted us uh, highly, and as you can imagine, it was very difficult to reach out to this type of population during the pandemic when the colleges were shut down. You will see that all our participants are female, so you will see in my study I don't have male participants. That's because our main intervention is testing an educational component on birth control methods. And why do we collect sugar? Because for the control sites, so for, for the students that are enrolled in control sites, uh, we're offering education about sugar and the effect on health. This is a project called the Sugar Science that was developed by a researcher at the UCSF, and they have an amazing tools and resources, so we offer education on our website app for the students, so just that, you know, even if they were in control, they were getting something useful for their life. Um, study outcome. So this is our main variable. You will see in the white box uh, the, um, the question we have in the survey. And I have recorded every day as daily consumption as one and all the other category as zero. Uh, our main independent measure, measure is um, an item adapted from the US Department of Agriculture uh, household food security module. You can see the question here, and we code it together often or sometime true to being worried if the food will run out before we got money to buy more. And we code it as zero, so not food insecure, never true. Uh, we have other variables here that are included in this slide, so age, state of residence, race, ethnicity, language spoken at home, and living with parents. You probably know that living with parents is a moderator for food insecurity, so it's been found from research and also in our analysis that normally uh, young adults living with their parents are less food insecure than the one living alone or with other uh, household arrangements. Uh, okay, it's just important to say that the baseline data is uh, over 2,000 data and just showing you some results. So it's a lot of number years, just please stay with me. What I want to show you is that it's a diverse uh, uh, sample. Over 60% of our sample uh, self-identify as Latinx or Hispanic. And uh, these numbers are consistent with the number of enrolled students in community college in both states and in the community college that we are. So it's not unusual. This is really the type of students that attend community college in those two states. Uh, also, uh, half of our samples speak another language other than English at home, and it's pretty young sample. 80% is 18 or 19 years old. Uh, most of them are in California, and also most of them still live with their parents. About food insecurity, 30% of our sample answered that they will experience it often or sometimes. So when we look at the consumption of sugary drink, that's what we found. So over 10% of our samples say that they drink uh, sugary drink daily. And if we look at food insecure people, this number was higher. So the proportion of food insecure people drinking daily sugary drink was 13%, and it was just 9% for food secure people. If we look at the distribution by race ethnicity, we see that uh, the consumption was higher for black participants. So it was over 70% that answered daily, per, uh, daily consumption. And it was around 9-10% for Hispanic and white people. Uh, when we uh, ran our model, what we found is that food insecure students were 1.5 times more likely 
to report daily consumption of sugar sweetened beverage than students who were not experienced food insecurity. So our results are consistent with what has already been found in the literature when we studied adults. And uh, we can see that you know, being food insecure, insecure is also the only variable that is statistically significant in our model. I had run previous analysis with our data before completing baseline, and at that point, you know, along the last couple of years, black was uh, statistically significant. And at this time, it's not. Um, I will have to investigate more the data. I think it's something because also uh, the race ethnic, ethnic distribution of the sample. But uh, what is important that for now, food insecurity is really what is driven in our model, considering the socioeconomic variables, the consumption of uh, sugary drink beverage daily. These are the predictive probabilities. So it means that after I count for all the coverage that I have in my model, that's the probability that I predict that these people will consume sugary drink daily. And what we see that there is a six point percent difference between food insecure and food secure people. And I also see that the difference is very high among uh, the race and ethnic group. So in this case, we find our model estimates that 22% of our black participants are uh, you know, estimated to be drinking daily this type of drinks against 11% uh, of Hispanic and 12% of white. Uh, so what are our main takeaways? First of all, that, uh, you know, mm, in a certain way, we follow what the literature has found for other groups, mainly adults people. And so even when we are looking at community college students, we really see an higher consumption of sugary drinks uh, among uh, young adults. And uh, this is especially true when they are experiencing some food insecurity. And we also found that black students are more likely to consume sugary sweetened beverage. And additional analysis that we have run also showed that these students are more likely to report food insecurity, as also other studies have also found. All of this, I think, is really important because, as I told you before, community college students students are really under study and we have less resources than, for example, in four-year colleges. And so we have to think together with the community college uh, community ways for sharing more information and resources to support diet quality for the community college students, especially the ones that are uh, having difficulty assessing food. Thank you. Thank you, Irene. Uh, Suzanne is our next presenter. Let's just find our presentation. Okay, is it okay? Okay. That's okay. Don't worry. Okay. Hi, good afternoon, everybody. Um, so I'm Suzanne Piscopo from the island of Malta, and I teach at the University of Malta, and I'm going to be presenting um, a study which I conducted a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Karen Wallet, who couldn't be here today. Um, just 10 seconds. Who can name uh, the closest country to Malta? Okay. Italy, yes, you're so tight. I talk so much for your accent. Okay, yes. So Malta, just very quickly, is a tiny, tiny island. Actually, it's made up of three islands. The main island, Malta, is 17 miles by nine. Uh, 
The second island is about eight miles by seven, and the third island is one square mile. So that's the island, and that's the country I'm going to be talking about. Okay, so um, moving on. Um, uh, we looked at food insecurity amongst older people. But just to give you a bit of background, um, you know, the healthy aging policies are a priority at the moment for the Maltese government. And uh, we do have a national strategy for older persons where one of the objectives states that we need to provide uh, information on healthy eating on the centralized active aging website and distribute leaflets to older persons living in the community. So there's some mention there of all the persons living in the community and how they need to be informed better about healthy eating. There are audits being conducted in the long-term care facilities um, and other places where uh, older people live in a community, but not in, I mean, when I say in a community, in a sheltered sort of um, elderly care center. However, there is lack of evidence on food consumption and provisioning among community living Maltese older persons. These are persons who still live in their own home. When I'm saying community living, it means um, older persons still living in their own home. So let me just move forward here. Okay. So our research objectives were mainly to explore what these community living elderly eat and prefer in different settings. How do these elderly source their food? What help um, they have, if any, in sourcing the food? What are the challenges they face in food provision and consumption? And their perceptions of food adequacy at home. We used a mixed uh, method approach, a sequential mixed method approach. So first we had a quantitative element in the form of a survey via questionnaire, which was then followed up by the qualitative focus groups uh, approach. Um, in choosing our sample, they had to be 65 years and over, obviously living um, in their own home, in, um, so living independently in their own home, and we recruited them either via daycare centers, so these are centers where the elderly can go and just spend some hours and then they go back home, um, or we also put a post on social media and also snowball sampling, so in the sense that, you know, an elderly person would encourage another elderly person to, to participate in the survey. The survey was therefore, in fact, we had both a pen and paper, hard copy version, which was mainly used in the daycare centers. For those who we recruited through social media and even snowball sampling, often it was that they did the online sample, but exactly the same questions, etc. So the final sample was made up of 264 participants for the survey, and within the three focus groups, we had 24 participants. Um, analysis was pretty traditional in the sense of we just did basic frequencies for the survey, looking at dietary intake at the food and meal level. We didn't ask about portion sizes and serving sizes and number of portions, so we couldn't do a nutrition analysis. So we just stopped at the food and meal level. The common sources of food, we, we elicited those, the support for food provisioning, so we got frequencies for all of these, and challenges faced. And then through the focus group, we did uh, a regular, again, thematic analysis, coding four themes, and also eliciting some direct quotations, which 
which would provide depth to the survey findings. So this is our survey sample, um, primarily, so you're looking there at the 40% with regards to age, so primarily the sample was 65 to 70 year old, they were primarily female, okay, 81% approximately, um, they were primarily married, so 53% were married, and um, 48% lived with another person aged 65 or older. So it could have been their spouse, their partner, a sibling, but somebody else who was also 65 um, years or older. So just to come to the key results related to food and food provisioning and food consumption, here we've just listed the top five foods or drinks consumed in different settings. Uh, we have breakfast, lunch, tea, snack, and supper. And those are percentages there, so you're, look, you're seeing that breakfast, uh, the main, uh, let's say, food item was served, milk followed by toast with either butter or jam or marmalade, and to a you know, close extent, let's put it this way, fruit was also there. Um, interestingly, um, many had coffee or tea, but primarily coffee was the main drink uh, for breakfast. For soups, excuse me, for lunch we see soups as the main uh, food item, uh, soups, broth, I've, I've put in some words in Maltese for you there, but you can re recognize some of them. So broth and minestrone type of soups. And uh, meat dishes came second, vegetables uh, third, and then there was also pasta, which mo is more or less at par with vegetables. Fish was slightly lower. We had a presentation this morning in the BRICS talking about the need to increase fish consumption and aquatic food consumption. So here it was also low. Um, tea, as you can imagine, was mainly uh, tea or coffee, or tea or coffee with some kind of uh, tea time sweet. We have lots of traditional tea time sweets, so that was quite common. Um, and then as a snack, fruit predominated. Um, and to a much lower degree, things like crackers, nuts, sandwiches, and yogurt. But fruit was the main snack. And supper, again, we had soups up there, but we also had sandwich-type things, or uh, bruschetta, which is from the Italian, but let's say um, something which involved bread. So uh, um, a snack was really, around bread was often the supper, was often the supper meal. And then you also had pasta and meat, but to lower uh, degrees there. So just a little bit more about the desserts. Um, the most commonly consumed dessert was cake, uh, followed by ice cream and then chocolate. So um, cake, you know, stood out there as a, as a common dessert. Uh, um, interestingly, before they, you know, the bedtime drink was often just water, either plain or with honey. And they did tell us that's a quote there to swallow pills. So they had medication, and they would use with just warm plain water or, lemon, or with lemon or honey to have their pills. And um, um, then uh, um, some also had chamomile or green and herbal teas. Some non-dessert items which they mentioned as treats were cheese, nuts, cereals, packet snacks, uh, and something which is in Maltese is called pastice, which is pastries with either cheese or pea filling. And this is just a quote from one of the elderly persons from the focus group. Bread, pasta, coke, all taste good. I'm trying to consume less of them. Okay, so um, some other responses about food eaten in a different settings, which also emerged from the focus groups. So almost all respondents consume lunch as their main meal of the day. Uh, meat is more common than fish, as we've seen. Supper is a lighter meal than lunch. And for lunch and supper, dishes mentioned suggest that childhood home cooking still influences the choices of what they cook. 
So there again, lots of names in Maltese, but I'll explain them. So they had minestrone, broth, um, a kind of soup with broad beans, another soup with cheese. Um, they had stuffed mayos. They had baked pasta, baked rice, the bread with tuna and oil. These are all very traditional dishes, which they would have consumed in their childhood, and they were still cooking them. Um, dishes were seasonal. So they had soups uh, more often in winter and salads more often in summer. And the most traditional foods, however, which they consumed are what we call in Maltese soup dishes, which are mainly soups, okay? Anything which you eat with, um, excuse me, a spoon, spoon dishes, anything you eat with a spoon, spoon food or spoon dishes. Um, what about accessibility now? So one in four elderly um, have a problem accessing food. 66% stated that accessing food was very easy or easy, but 17% said it was only relatively easy, and 9% said it was difficult. So we have about one in four who have a problem with accessing food. Where do they get their food from? So mainly, 74% of the elderly buy the food themselves, Okay, so they, are, they buy their own food. 50% are assisted by family members, um, and only 1.5% make use of a nationally subsidized Meals on Wheels scheme, where basically you can apply to get a meal delivered to you in your own home every day, or how many times you wish, and the meal, the meal which is a three-course meal with a starter and a main dish and a dessert and a bit of bread, a roll of bread, costs around about $3 per day. So it's a very heavily subsidized meal. Um, and you can, uh, you can have it every day if you wish, but you can also have it fewer times a day. But only 1.5% made use of that. They preferred to cook their own, their own food, okay? Um, with regards to aid from family members, as I said, there were a number who said they got this aid from family members. Primarily, they got it on a weekly basis. Maybe the family member preparing some food for them on a weekly basis, um, but 30% do not have aid. Okay, I'm seeing I'm kind of running out of time here, so I'm going to hurry a bit. Shopping practices. Uh, the elderly will source food from shops close to their home. Uh, they go there because it's convenient for them, and they like to buy fresh food. They don't access open markets so much because often they're a bit far away, especially the farmer's markets. If they do drive, they do go shopping for food, but it has to have easy parking and the low prices for them to drive all the way. Um, we did ask them if they bought food in bulk, and a number of them do, two-thirds, 66%. They mentioned various reasons. It's convenience, it saves time, avoids having to shop daily. It's a way of ensuring that you will find food when required in case of emergency, and it motivates one to cook in bulk and also saves money. Challenges which they mentioned, um, so about 39% said that they were challenged when it comes to eating healthily, so lack of appetite, chewing slowly, missing teeth, lack of mobility, inability to stand up for long, too tired to cook due to health reasons, too tired because it's too hot, living alone, um, and access to food. So those were one of, you know, some of the main challenges. Quotes, when you are alone, it's not worth the hassle. Or disease does not allow you to eat everything. I have diabetes and bread, sweets, junk foods, and pastries are all bad for you. Um, food affordability. Let me just take two more slides, and then I'll just come to the conclusions. I'll skip a few slides. 86% um, said food is affordable. Um, the 14% who said no stated that the biggest problem was the increase in prices. Um, 
and they explained that the pension was perhaps not enough to cover both the food and medical expenses. Although we have a free national health scheme, still some medication needs to be bought from out of their own pocket. Um, so, you know, this, this was a problem for just 14% when it comes to food affordability. Excuse me, I'm just going to skip a little bit here. Um, let's come to the conclusions. So, a majority of the surveyed older persons appear to be fairly food secure. They consume a varied diet. Access to food is relatively easy. Uh, you realize now we're a small country, especially though when there is even support from the family. The majority do not consider a cost as a barrier to healthy eating, but nearly one half said they found it a challenge to eating healthily, and the main challenges were because of physical status and functionality, dietary restrictions because of you know dietary problems, they may have diet-related chronic diseases, isolation and lack of motivation. I just want to leave you with recommendations um, focusing on education. There were other recommendations, but just to focus mainly on education. So we need to encourage um, things which we've been hearing about even at this conference, like mixed generation food for health and fun programs, where, let's say, younger people adopt an old neighbor or an old relative to join uh, in joint food cooking activities. Also to have community kitchens, which was really recommended by the elderly, which were in the focus group. And uh, the the recommendation is to really have targeted education for the elderly, and especially also considering that elderly people, um, you have the old and the old old now. So they will have different dietary needs and different preferences as how to what they want to learn. And that's you know really it. Further research, we really need to broaden this research to reach those old old, the 75-year-olds and older, to really see what their uh, food security is and also what kind of education they would like to receive to have good, safe, adequate, nutritious and tasty food. Thank you very much. Thank you. I can get out of there for you if you wish. Thank you so much. Um, uh, and the next speaker is Susmita uh, Sadana. the one to have technical issues. Trying to get out of your presentation here. Not able to get out of the thing. Yeah, it's frozen. <laughs> it's frozen. This Thank you. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for being here and for your willingness to listen to this uh, presentation. So I'm going to be speaking about the perceived impact of dietary patterns on cancer among Asian Indians living in the US, and I want to express my thanks to Dr. Bhuvana Ramaswamy, who is a leading oncologist at Ohio State University. She does translational research and clinical practice, and uh, 
She's highly regarded in the field of oncology. Uh, then Dr. Colleen Spees, who is, serves on the American Cancer Society. She's a professor at Ohio State University, a division of medical dietetics. She also runs the Hope Garden for cancer patients and survivors. And Dr. Christopher A. Taylor, who was the troubleshooter here, he is actually <laughs> a highly distinguished scholar and the head of, uh, chair of the Division of uh, Medical Dietetics at The Ohio State University. Um, this is part of, uh, this comes out of my master's thesis research and so Dr. Taylor was my advisor. So I'll begin with the background considerations. So among the Asian Indian community, three in five global deaths are attributed to four major non-communicable diseases. Cardiovascular disease is the best known mortality factor in this community, but cancer is now emerging as a leading mortality cause. Then we have chronic lung diseases and diabetes. So Asian Indians typically have been underrepresented in studies investigating you know, knowledge and understanding of health and cancer. So the overall design of this uh, research was to probe uh, about perceptions and knowledge of health and cancer in this, in this community. And there is, um, what we realized as the data emerged is that there is also huge paucity in research on the impact of dietary patterns on cancer among Asian Indians. And uh, so it was a very interesting set of data that emerged and that is what this, this abstract is based on. So cancer is the second leading cause of mortality among this population. And as I mentioned, there's you know, not enough data about cultural perceptions in this community about health and cancer. So just to give you some demographic information, the Asian Indian population is the largest Asian group in about 23 states in the United States. Uh, it's more than any other detailed Asian group. Asian Indians are also one of the largest groups and it is the fastest growing population, Asian population in the United States. So it makes sense for us to be investigating you know, non-communicable diseases, leading cause of mortality, and, you know, perceptions about these diseases. So estimates vary. So we have 3 million, uh, about 3 million 900,000 to 4 million 460,000. So about 0.9% of the total population to about 1.3% of the total uh, U.S. population. This study was carried out in Ohio. So there's about uh, 100,000 uh, uh, Asian Indians living in Ohio alone. So they are about 3% of the state's population, and again, fastest growing population in ethnic group in the, in the state of Ohio as well. And uh, since 2010, the population has increased about, you know, 48%. So these are some of the other problems that, you know, we faced when we, are, when we did this research. Previous research on cancer in the Asian population tends to group all Asians in one, under one umbrella. East Asians, Southeast Asians, South Asians, Pacific Islanders, Hawaiians. So what is ignored is the diversity, right? And more importantly, and so I'm not gonna dwell a lot on what this diversity means, but what the important factors for this study was that the dietary patterns are hugely varying, right? And an important consideration for this population, the Asian Indian population, is that 
of Asian Indians um, on the subcontinent and the first generation immigrants that are here are vegetarians. And this is a faith-based vegetarianism, right? And this is the only country with such a high percentage of vegetarians. And the same vegetarian patterns that were followed in the motherland or in India or in the Indian subcontinent have continued with this first generation immigrants. And why that is important is about 68% of Asian Indians living in the United States are foreign born, meaning that they're first generation immigrants. <coughs> and so this was a mixed method study in December of 2020 to January of 2021. We had the quantitative part of the research. First, we recruited participants by placing fly flyers on all Asian Indian social media groups in Ohio. We were also, uh, you know, during, this was a post-pandemic or pandemic time, so we had to work on social media. So participants filled out an online demographic survey, and then interested participants have been recruited for a one-on-one -on -one follow up interview on Zoom, so one-on-one -on -one semi-structured interviews. So the criteria were that they were all adults greater than over 25 years of age with no prior diagnosis of cancer, and they were of 100% Asian Indian origin. So the demographic survey was filled by 33 uh, participants, and then for the qualitative interview, we had 20 uh, participants. So after the demographic survey, we did qualitative semi-structured interview conducted with these adults. And these individual con uh, interviews were conducted on Zoom by a trained interviewer. Um, and the verbatim transcripts were then cross-checked for consistency prior to analysis. And the transcript analysis were performed by two independent um, uh, coders after they received training for qualitative analysis. So this is what this slide represents the uh, results of the demographic survey, I mean the, the quantitative survey. And the results were, um, I, I can't say they were unequivocal across the board, but what was clear was that uh, most participants, majority part, or all participants in fact considered that a vegetarian diet was either slightly decreased cancer risk, that's about 32% of the, of the uh, respondents. The mostly decreased cancer risk was again about 10% and then greatly decreases cancer risk for about 60% of the respondents. And then same with fruits and vegetables. Um, so fruits and vegetables, vegetarian diet, and traditional Indian diet were mostly f uh, felt by participants to decrease cancer risk. But traditional Indian diet, we had about 10% of the participants saying that it could moderately increase cancer risk. So we had that um, response also. And then processed meats were seen by all participants to increase cancer risk. Uh, meat and animal products, uh, we had uh, sort of mixed response. There were respondents who thought it decreases uh, cancer risk, then the respondents who thought it increases cancer risk. So um, we had a clear sort of answer there. But after the qualitative interviews, these were some of the salient themes that emerged. That there is a superiority complex among 
among the Asian Indians because they are vegetarian. So they had a moral high ground that is what they felt. Like we are vegetarian, so how can we, you know, face the risk of non-communicable diseases? So, and so there was this vegetarian paradox. There were some who said, we are vegetarians, but you know, maybe not the right kind of vegetarians because we are eating a lot of processed carbohydrates. Then, of course, traditional diet was a huge part of our conversations. So there is, of course, a, a nostalgia for the traditional diet growing up. And I think this is, we haven't done any research on you know, their counterparts living in India, whether they have the same feelings towards the traditional diet. But for immigrants, there is always that, you know, the immigrant angst, right? So there is a lot of nostalgia for that traditional Indian diet. And you know, it linked them to the, to the motherland, to their ancestors, to their grandparents, and so on. So there's a lot of, there's a huge emotional component there. And then, um, some of them did talk about you know, the possible impact of these refined carbohydrates on cancer. And then a major theme that emerged was rice, rice, rice. Right? So the Indian subcontinent can be divided into two halves. The northern half uses a lot of wheat, but most of the peninsular half uses rice. So rice is a big part of a traditional Indian meal. So Unlike, the, unlike, say, for example, here in the United States, you will have a protein as the centerpiece of the, of the plate. In the, in the Indian traditional meal, carbohydrates is the, traditional, is the centerpiece of the meal, and, then, and that carbohydrate tends to be white, refined, polished rice, right? And a lot of the, um, a lot of the respondents acknowledged that they had, that that the Asian Indian food had a protein problem, right? Because what a, a meal consists of would be a lot of rice, and there would be lentils, which are also polished. So the outer part that contains the bran and the fiber is removed, and then the, the lentils are also polished. So yes, there is a lentil, but then that's also polished. And a lentil ends up, if you look at the nutrient analysis, uh, it is a complex carbohydrate, more than a source of protein. So the protein provided from the lentil is also not enough. And some of the respondents were aware of this. And then often, when you know, there is there are vegetables on the plate, but often there is, you know, uh, my last point here is the convenience trap, right? What is the easiest vegetable to cook? Potatoes. So there is more starch there, right? So many respondents were aware of this. So here are some quotes, right? Um, like it's interesting because the vegetarian is usually considered like to be better, but I do feel like what I've noticed is that you know we do eat a lot of white rice. So like that's not great either. And then here again, I think everybody falls into the convenience trap, right? So a lot of convenience foods, even in Asian Indian homes, like there's a lot of frozen pre-prepared meals available in all Indian grocery stores. And often, they tend to be carbohydrate-based, refined carbohydrate-based. So again, this theme kept coming up, this idea that Indian, the Indian diet is high in carbs, and especially if you're vegetarian. So this type of knowledge has come uh, to this population after moving here rather than 
while they were living back in the in India. But now uh, this global messaging is become more prevalent about you know eating more fiber, including protein. So that discourse we're done. Okay. All right. Huh. <laughs> okay. I just want you to look at this map, right? This is how much carbohydrates, percentage of carbohydrates um, consumed. It's over 70% all over India. And this meme has been <laughs> propagated, has been distributed by a state government in India. So there's a popular soap opera character, Kokila Ben. Okay, she's a very cruel mother-in-law. She's always angry. So <laughs> the government is capitalizing on that, saying she didn't get her protein. That's why she's so mad. <laughs> so, so the government is even aware of this. So the participants said, share personal stories, set up booths in uh, you know big Asian Indian community festivals, and then disseminate information on various WhatsApp groups, which is something preferred and used by a lot of this community. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sumitha. Um, Amara? everyone. Thank you for coming today. I'm excited to share the results of my dissertation on social network influence among infant feeding decisions um, among Latinx women. I will say I submitted this before um, doing the member checking and the participants did say that they prefer to use the term Latina rather than Latinx. So when referring to the participants uh, through the presentation, I will use Latina. Um, if I'm referring to a general population, I'll use Latinx. So the first year of life is one of the most important nutritional periods, as many of you probably know. Um, and there are stark disparities with low-income and minoritized infants being less likely to meet the breastfeeding and complementary food uh, recommendations. And the disparities are due to many, many factors, but they include healthcare access, economic resources, discrimination, and neighborhood environment. So looking at social networks, there is some previous work that looks at social networks and infant feeding. And knowing someone who breastfed is associated with longer duration. Um, partners and grandmothers influence milk feeding practices, but there's very little research looking at the introduction of complementary foods and how social networks influence those. Um, what we do know is that women begin learning about um, complementary foods around the time that they introduce them, um, and they get a lot of their information from family and friends. So the research question was, how do social networks influence infant feeding decisions and practices for Latinx women living in the United States? And I based my work on three different theories. I come from a very theory-based department, but social network theory, responsive parenting theory, and life course theory. So um, social network theory provides a basis for how personal relationships influence decisions around feeding through information sharing, providing support, and influencing decisions. Whereas responsive parenting um, theory helps provide a framework for parental feeding practices with responsive feeding practices, including focusing on hunger and satiety, clear expectations, and predictable schedules. And life course theory supports the critical need for early nutrition 
as it influences a child's health trajectory and understanding of social structure and disparities. Um, so the eligibility requirements for the study were self-identifying as Latinx, being 18 years or older, having an infant who is 6 to 24 months old, born in the U.S., and consuming complementary foods. So I used a convergent mixed methods approach. I interviewed 30 mothers overall for the quantitative portion, where we did ego-centric um, network maps with each of those participants. And 15 of the participants also did an in-depth interview, which took one to two hours. Um, I did a three-step analysis, so qualitative using thematic analysis, um, quantitative using descriptive statistics, bivariate analysis, analysis, and linear regression, and integrating the two. So I followed the five steps of thematic analysis. Um, the interviews were analyzed in the original language, so either Spanish or English, um, and translated as necessary for dissemination. Um, and as part of the qualitative research portion, I used several strategies to improve trustworthiness. So I reflected on my own experiences as um, in position, including being a breastfeeding mother at the time and a white woman in this country. And I engaged in peer debriefing with other members of the research team and conducted member checking. Um, so for those of you who are not familiar with the terms of social network analysis, um, the ego is the participant, and the alters are the people they name. So, right, if it's a mother, their own mother, their partner is their alter. Um, so all of the variables um, I analyzed with descriptive statistics um, and then looked at network structure, tie strength, and alter behavior. Um, and used a linear regression to look at how alter behaviors um, weighted by perceived closeness predicted breastfeeding outcomes. And then the final step was um, the integration, merging the results to allow for a direct comparison and exploration. So getting into the sample, um, participants were from nine countries in the Americas, including Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, and the U.S. The mean maternal age was 31 years, and mean child age was 12 months. In terms of income, 63% um, were under 185% uh, of the poverty level, and about two-thirds were WIC participants. And when it came to feeding practices, almost all of the mothers intended to breastfeed, and every single one of them initiated breastfeeding, but only 37% were able to breastfeed exclusively for the time that they desired. The mean age of complementary foods was about 5.7 months, um, and most started with either a puree or a banana. So moving into the mixed methods results, I generated three themes. Um, the people moms talked to, navigating multiple cultural influences, and moms just know. So for the first theme, the average network size was 4.5 alters, which is with a range of 0 to 21, so it was a very wide range. 
and the average density was 0.6. Average time known was 15 years, and perceived closeness was 8 out of 10. Um, alters were 41 years on average, almost all of them had their own children, and about half of them had breastfed their children. So you can see here, these are the network maps that I created for each of the 30 participants. The ego themselves are not included in these graphics, um, but it gives you an idea of the range. Um, the one in the bottom quarter had uh, 21 alters, whereas there are several who had one or zero. So women describe their networks very differently. Um, on the smaller side, we had Jimena, who just talked to her sister-in-law, her husband, and her own opinion. Um, Ida, just talked to her mom. And on the larger side, um, Betty had a network of moms, her own mother, and a group of friends that had also had their own children. Um, and they also had a range of experiences comparing um, introducing infant milks versus the uh, complementary foods. And this wasn't statistically significant because for some women it was larger for breast milk or formula than for complementary foods, and for others it swapped. Um, and the network size was significantly associated with income. Um, so lower income mothers, like the quotes reflected here, had smaller networks than the larger, the um, higher income mothers. So participants who are immigrants also had smaller networks and were more likely to rely on cultural influence, although they felt like there was a dual influence with the U.S. culture always cha also changing some of their practices. Um, so Malayana talked about um, how you want to raise your children the same way that your parents raised you. And Jennifer, who was a uh, second-generation Latina, talked about the difference of culturally being born in the U.S. or coming from Latin America and the way that those cultural pressures changed based on where you were born or where you grew up. Um, so for the third theme, um, in this group of participants, maternal intuition and following baby's lead was a more important part of infant feeding decisions that alter behaviors. Um, so Molly talked about, I would just say to follow what you feel in your heart to do, every baby is different and every mom knows their baby to the full extent. Um, and that can be seen in the quantitative results as the linear regression looking at number of alters who breastfed, weighted by perceived closeness, was not a predictor of duration or length of exclusive breastfeeding which is very different than what you see in the literature on this topic. So, um, overall, for me, the study highlighted the need for additional support, particularly for immigrant mothers. Um, following baby's lead was a very important piece of decision-making, which suggests that interventions, which include signs of readiness, may be well-received in this population. The interruption of networks, their immigration, was another important factor, as this limited the support and information that women could get from their friends and families. Although there were some moms who were like, you know, I talked to my doctor, that was all I needed, others really desperately wanted support from their mother back home, um, their aunts, right, their extended network. 
Um, and women also had to navigate different practices and beliefs around infant feeding from multiple countries um, and determine how to feed their children. So both the immigrant women and US-born women had to navigate those multiple cultural influences with their family and friends and the medical providers giving different types of advice. Um, so in terms of the strengths and limitations, uh, this is the first study that I'm aware of that looks at specifically Latinx families and social influence around infant feeding. Um, and the mixed method approach gives it informational richness. Um, I did do all of the interviewing myself, uh, which opens it to social desirability, um, and the study may not be transferable to other populations. Um, there's additional research that needs to be done in other immigrant communities. All right, so that's all I have for you. Thank you so much, so much Hamara. Um, so I will invite all the presenters to probably, instead of sitting here, if you can sit here so much more, more people can see you. And uh, I am opening up the floor for questions from the, from the audience. Um, there's a microphone there. If you can come closer to that, that would be great. Hi, can you all hear me? Okay, um, first of all, thank you very much for those presentations. They were all really great. Um, Amara, I had a question for you about your um, project because I've heard that with breastfeeding especially can be a very emotional, of course, and psychological experience for mothers as well. And so I'm curious whether in this population, um, especially with their so social and support networks, if you found any I guess, information about, especially if mothers couldn't, weren't able to continue breastfeeding or if they ha whatever challenges that they had with that on the psychological side of things, how those social and support networks also played into that. I'd be really curious to hear about that. Yeah, I think, I mean, just like, right, any population that breastfeeds, there were lots of challenges. I think it was particularly hard for this population because so many of them were low income, that there was no lactation consultant, there wasn't anywhere to go. Many of them were feeding during the formula shortage. Um, so there's that added stress and the narrative around how, you know, there was this, a lot of moms talked about the narrative of like, well, you don't need formula, just breastfeed. And they had done absolutely every single thing in their power to breastfeed their children and it wasn't working. Um, I think the support networks, um, you know, served as a piece of advice, but also a lot of them said, stop, right? Like husbands, partners were like, you cannot do this. You are not parenting the way you want to be parenting because you are crying in the corner with a pump and it's time to give this piece of it up. You can do better things, right, switching to formula. So I have that all in a different paper, but there's a lot to talk about. <laughs> I think we have time for one or two questions, probably. Can you hear me okay? All right. Um, great presentations, thank you. Really interesting. Uh, I had a question. I did not get your last name, doctor, but the study in Malta, um, you mentioned how most reported being food secure and 84% could uh, afford their meals. Mm -hmm. And I'm just thinking, being in the United States, how 
we have such a food security issue, obviously around affordability. How can a small island in the Mediterranean, or off of Italy, um, you know, what can we learn from that food system in the United States? And is there any like key differences that you're seeing that's increasing affordability and increasing food security? Okay, well, well, thank you for asking that question. Um, maybe what I should have said as well was that this data was collected in August of last year, and we do know that since August up to now, there has been an increase on a global level of food prices. So maybe there you would have had a less uh, percentage. But just to come to your um, to come to your kind of question as to what happens. Well, this is not something which we've studied in depth yet, but I would love to study it further. It's more from an anecdotal evidence in my meetings to different elderly in different settings in Malta. Um, they're very careful how they um, maximize the food which they, which they buy. They don't waste a lot. They know how to really, you know, maximize. So if you have vegetables, you know, to really um, use all parts of the vegetable, not throw away leaves and things like that, they will know how to um, store the food so it's stored well and it doesn't go to waste. So there's lots of practical knowledge which they apply still in their home. And then also, yes, there is, as you saw, some aid from um, their, their, their children, their older children. So it kind of works well both ways. But yes, some of the older children will, you know, volunteer to buy some food for them and then not ask them to kind of reimburse them and things like that. So there's that issue as well. It's true that in Malta we have, um, because we're an island, we do import a lot of our food. So in a way, I mean, um, there are advantages and disadvantages to that in many ways. But because there's a lot of food which imported, that actually keeps the cost down because there's lots of competition. So it helps to keep the cost down because there's lots of different importers bringing in the same kind of food. So that helps to keep uh, costs down. Of course, then, the elderly as well, and I'll just kind of end on this, as you saw, that they do like to consume their traditional foods. So they will make use of vegetables and fruits, and while they, again, because of their knowledge, they eat seasonally, so they buy when the food is cheap. So they cook the dishes when it's seasonal uh, to do so, if you want to say that. And, and even they will consume local cheeses, which could be uh, cheaper as well, things like ricotta. I mean, something ridiculous, like uh, it's like 60, um, I know, less than a dollar for so, for so much, you know. So th they don't know how to stretch their dollars, you would say, here in the US. And I think that practical wisdom actually should be shared with the younger generations as well. I don't have any scientific data, but I hope to, that helps to answer your question a little bit. Thank you. Very much, thank you. Well, uh, thank you so much for sharing your exciting research and for the thought-provoking uh, findings. And thank you, everyone, for attending. And I invite you, if, invite you, if you have questions for our presenters, just come and ask them <laughs> personally. Thank you.